the Lord our God makes us holy. He consecrates us by his own word. Scripture from Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 to 25. Now the birth, and literally it's the word Genesis. Okay, It's used twice in Matthew 1, and that's significant. We'll come to it later. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God will stand forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. Our Lord, we can pray better than what we've just sung. Open wide the portals of our heart, and sovereign King Jesus, come in and give us that new and nobler life that is the very life of heaven here on earth. Grant it to your glory, we pray, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now you have beautiful Haven Blue Bibles in front of you in the racks, and I think it's going to be best if you open them and turn to the first page of the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew. And you might know there's no page number there, but that's page 959, page 959, and I would suggest that you use your Bibles today, or page 5 if you want. I want you to imagine that you are Matthew, okay? We're looking at Matthew's gospel. You, you are Matthew, and God has chosen you for a very particular purpose. Matthew's a most interesting figure. He's the first of the 12 that would later become, well, 12 disciples that would later become apostles, was called. And it's interesting that Matthew was Matthew was a Matthew was a, a high-level worker for the IRS of the first century. How does that grab you? He was a tax collector. And just to tell you how despised, and it's not if you work for the IRS, my apologies, but <laughs> this is the way it was in the first century. Just to show you how 
how despised tax collectors were when Jesus is having a meal with these people that are the outcasts of society. It's not sinners, which was really, really, really bad. It was tax collectors and sinners, which meant it was really, 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 really bad if you were one who represented Rome, who extorted money from people, who padded your own pocket, and basically represented corruption. Okay? And that's the first of the disciples the Lord Jesus called. And when Jesus is looked upon askance by the Pharisaic religious leaders, Jesus says, uh, remember, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. And interestingly, Matthew would have tax collector as his business card for the rest of his life, because as you go on in Matthew, when Jesus lays out the 12 that are called, mostly it's just the names of the different people, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and so forth. But it's Matthew, the tax collector. That's his business card as an apostle of Christ. And that is very, very significant. Now, God has chosen you to be the writer of the first book of what we would know of as the New Testament, a tax collector who is very much aware that he was despised by his culture and very much aware of his own failings and sin. It's sometime after the ascension of the Lord Jesus, we don't know exactly when, but probably within 20 years after our Lord ascends into heaven. And God the Holy Spirit begins to work in Matthew, the tax collector, so that the tax collector begins to write in his own vocabulary the very things that the Holy Spirit wants him to write as what we would know of as the first gospel. And here's where I want you to start looking in Matthew chapter 1. Because in Matthew, as Matthew is writing, he begins, interestingly, with the word that we mentioned once before. He begins by saying in Matthew chapter 1, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. The first book of the New Testament carries the same name as the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, in the beginning. And I don't know that Matthew realizes this at this point, although he may, but what Matthew's beginning to write about is a whole new creation that is going to come into the world with that one who is the promised Christ, the Messiah. Christ is the anointed one, the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king who would come in all of his offices to do what Israel had hoped for and longed for for all of the years. And this must have absolutely thrilled Matthew to realize he is writing now about the hopes and fears of all the years that are met in Christ. And he continues to write. And my guess is he winced. Because in this line of the Christ, who would be the Savior of the world, you read in verse 2 of Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac, was not a good guy. Jacob was called a supplanter. You wouldn't have wanted Jacob for your brother. You would have wanted to beat him up. But he was a bad guy until the Lord worked in him and made him a good guy. 
Tamar in verse 3, who was raped in the line of the Christ. Verse 5, Rahab, who was a prostitute, who was married to Boaz, from whom the Christ would come. Ruth, who was not a Jew, she was a Moabitess. In fact, the Moabites were enemies of God's people. But she is in the line of Christ. And Matthew, under the inspiration of God, is not just writing about David, who was in the line of Christ. Jesus is the greater son of David. But David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, by an adulterous act that was followed up by a murder of Uriah, led by David, in the line of Christ. Rehoboam, in verse 7 who was the first king of Judah following Solomon at that time, the kingdom divided. Rehoboam was, quite frankly, kind of a jerk in his early years as he led the land, listening to the younger rather than the older, and bringing about a division in the land of Israel. Abijah, who was a really bad guy, Abijah simply followed the ways of evil, in what he did, but he was in the line of Christ. Manasseh, verse 10. Manasseh sacrificed his own son to idols, and he was in the line of Christ. And all of that evil culminated in verse 11, which is also repeated in verse 17, the deportation to Babylon. Israel and Judah were so bad God sent them into exile. Matthew is writing about 2,000 years of history in which his emotions would be just like yours as you look at this world. So much evil. So much that's despicable. So much that is repulsive to God and to us. And yet God had a plan And God was working through the most evil things in that day, even as he is doing it today. Nothing will upset his plans. Nothing will upset his timing. Our problem is that our timing is not always right. The sun has the power by gravity to keep all of the planets and the moons in its orbit, and and they're constant and the asteroids and the meteors that uh, pop around in the solar system really don't affect that at all. Even with this rampant evil that was there, God had a purpose. Matthew's writing about it. And that purpose was to bring into the world Jesus Christ. And so in verse 18, in verse 18, and here you may want to turn to page 5 if you want a little bit bigger print where we've got the verse. Matthew now writing under the inspiration of God uses the term Genesis again. Now, the Genesis of Jesus Christ, or the birth of Jesus Christ, took place in this way. Jesus is bringing in, folks, a whole new world. It's a world called new creation, and it's a foretaste of heaven itself. And Matthew is God's instrument 
to do for the new covenant, the period what we're, that we're in, what Moses did for the old covenant. And, and, and Matthew says this, this is the way this took place. And, and here you've got to be familiar with marriage customs. Now notice, that Ma- notice how names are important here. There's lots of names in Matthew chapter 1 and 1 to 17. And God worked through all those names. Now you've got two names. And those two names are Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed, and here's the second one, to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to understand something about the marriage customs of that day. We have engagement in which uh, a man and a woman say publicly, we're going to get married. And that's not exactly like a betrothal, because in a betrothal, you were legally married. But you weren't permitted to have sexual intimacy until the actual day of the marriage. And if you did have sexual intimacy before the day of the marriage, uh, that was fornication, and there was very severe punishment for that. Or if the woman had sexual relations with even somebody else, Believe it or not, that was still regarded as adultery because they were betrothed. Now notice the dilemma that Joseph is in. And I would suggest to you that while you read it's a dream that he has, it was probably more like a nightmare. Because what Joseph is facing with his betrothed is this. She's pregnant. And I didn't have sexual relations with her. And nobody else had sexual relations with her. We'll find out how she became pregnant in a moment. But this is a crime. What do I do? And so Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They've not had sexual intimacy. And she's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If you want the technical phrase for this, it's the virginal conception. Mary's still a virgin. And she will stay a virgin. And all we learn of what happened is that the Holy Spirit overshadows her. That's the way the Gospel writer Luke puts it. And what is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? There's one thing that attaches to all of us, men, women, boys, and girls, because we come from our first parents, Adam, and that's sin. And now how that's passed on is a debate that the theologians can work on. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible says in so many words, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So if Jesus had had a human father, Joseph or someone else, Jesus would have been a sinner. But in order for someone to do what Jesus is going to do, what his name is going to do, he can't have any sin attached to him. And so while there was a human maternity, Mary, there's no human paternity. It is the Holy Spirit himself who is there. That's why Joseph was so called the father of Jesus. So Joseph is in a dilemma. He's a just man. He's upright. He wants to do what any genuine believer in the Lord wants to do. You want to do the right thing. and, And he loves Mary. He doesn't want to put her to shame. See, he could have said publicly, this woman's pregnant. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to fulfill my marriage vows to her, which had to be a public thing because the betrothal was public, because she's pregnant. But 
He didn't want to embarrass her. He didn't want to put her to shame. And so he resolved to use a part of the law that said you could meet with two witnesses and there could be a breaking of the betrothal by what was, practically speaking, divorce. And, and so this, this is the agony that Joseph is in. And I would suggest again that the dream that comes up here probably was a nightmare because he's considering these things. And you know what it must be like for him to try to turn in and say, this woman that I'm betrothed to, that I've been pure with, is pregnant. What do I do? And God does what is actually very common when God is about to do an amazing work in redemption. It's amazing the number of angels that we read about in the early chapters of the Gospels, angels that accompany Elizabeth and Zechariah and uh, others that are there, the angels on the night Jesus is born. And now an angel, we don't know who it is, maybe Gabriel, but an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. And again, it was an anguish that he was in as he's dreaming. And he says, Joseph, son of David, because both Joseph and Mary were in the line of Christ. He reminds him, Joseph, I have a higher way for you. You're in the line of Christ. You're a son of David. Don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I don't know that Joseph understood that, but at least he realized he was not the father. And so the angel goes on and says, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. We'll come back to this. For he will save his people from their sins. And Joseph, who would have known the Psalms very well, that was the book of the piety of the Jews, that would have resonated in Joseph's mind as it would in Matthew as he wrote, as it should for us. Because in Psalm 130, which is a psalm out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And that text ends with what the angel is speaking about here. You shall redeem Israel from all its iniquities. And the angel says he will save not just Israel, but his people from their sins. Our Lord has a people that he's chosen from the foundation of the world. And they're given to Christ in the decree of God. But he must save them from their sins, or God is unjust. So that's what's in view here. We'll come back to this because it's repeated a little bit later with good reason. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Notice how the word of God always is telling us that it's the word of God. The Lord himself had spoken by the prophet Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus had a middle name, Emmanuel, but here it means this is what he is. Jesus is his human name. Emmanuel is what he is. That means God with us. And 725 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah writing under the inspiration of God, the way Matthew's writing under the inspiration of God, is told exactly what would happen. This is a miracle. Virgins don't conceive, but God does miracles. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he's God. 
And I want that to sink into you in our culture that loves to revel in its atheism. How can we know God? Get to know Jesus in the Bible. Because he is God with us. And the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. The Word is self-expression of God. The Son is the self-expression of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternally begotten Son would be born of Mary. And yes, that babe that would be in a manger, that's God and man, two distinct natures and one person forever. Because Emmanuel, of course, means God with us. So in Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus is called the mighty God. So Joseph wakes up from his sleep. And notice what a model of a true believer the Lord is. When you read he's a just man, and it doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner, but, but he did the right thing. And notice how submissive he is to God's higher ways. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Do you do what God tells you to do in his word? That's the mark of a genuine, of a genuine believer in the Lord. If a child really believes his mom or dad or her mom or dad say, clean the room, they'll, they'll clean the room. And Joseph has been told to take Mary for his wife and not to be afraid. But notice, he didn't know her. He didn't have sexual relations with her until she had given birth to a son. Why was that? Because then there would have been confusion there would have been some confusion as to whether that child was really Joseph's or because, again, you wouldn't know when he had relations with her. Was it really Joseph's or someone else's? But she had not had any sexual intimacy so that she was, even at the time of birth, she was still a virgin. And I would imagine Joseph was a young man. He would have had desires the way all young men have for a woman. But he refrained himself from doing what he had the lawful right to do because Mary was his wife. Because again, God had a higher purposes. And, and brothers and sisters, I don't want to go too far afield here, but it's not always very helpful to say there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with doing it. Maybe there isn't anything wrong with doing it. But what's right about what you do. And Joseph knew that it was right not to have sexual intimacy with his wife. So there could be no question at all that what was born of her was of the Holy Spirit. And so he didn't know her. He didn't have sexual intimacy with her until she'd given birth to a son. And now we go from a lot of names in the beginning of Matthew to two names, Mary and Joseph, to one name that's above every name, and they called his name Jesus. In the Old Testament, there were at least a couple of Jesuses. Uh, one was a priest, that would come later, but the one probably in view here, because the name, the Old Testament name for Jesus is Joshua. And so we think of, we think of Joshua who led the Israelites out of the wilderness and into the promised land. 
And the word Joshua, which the New Testament is Jesus, means Yahweh, or the Lord, that's the technical name of Jehovah, Yahweh, which means I am. Yahweh, or Jehovah, is salvation, or Yahweh saves. And that's why they were to call his name Jesus, because he is, in fact, the great Joshua. And it's fascinating to reflect on that. Because what Jesus does as the great Joshua, Yahweh is salvation, is remarkably similar to what Joshua did very literally as he went into the land. Joshua goes into hostile territory, even as the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, comes into the hostile territory of our own hearts in which we don't want God in our thoughts, in which there's wounds and bruises and all forms that come from sin and comes to a place where there's not righteousness. As Joshua came to the land, particularly of the, of the Canaanites and their evil, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. And isn't it significant that as Joshua comes into the land, you've got to see Rahab saved. You've got to see that harlot saved. Why? Because she's going to be in the line of Christ. But for that to happen, the walls of Jericho fall down, and they really did. We even have archaeological evidence that shows the walls fell not inward, but outward. Fascinating. But isn't that exactly what the Holy Spirit does when he comes inside of us? There's a citadel in our own hearts that says, I will not come to Christ that I might have life. By nature, we don't love God, we hate God, even as there was a hatred of the Israelites. But God, by the Holy Spirit, comes in and breaks down those Jericho walls in our own hearts so that we don't bring resistance to the Lord. We do what the people at Jericho did. They surrendered to the Israelites. They surrendered to Joshua. Have you surrendered to Jesus, folks? You know, salvation isn't a partnership. Salvation is a sovereignty in which the Lord Jesus comes and reigns over us. And then Joshua leads the Israelites in progressively getting rid of the corruption and the evil that is there in the land of Israel. And it's not completely purged, even as that's true in us. We still have remaining indwelling sin in us. But day by day, the Holy Spirit comes, and he has a wonderful way of doing the mopping up operations of cleansing us and making us holy so that ultimately the Israelites would have what they never really attained perfectly in this life, but our great Joshua will do it, heaven itself, where the fruit of the land becomes a permanent possession in what we know of as the new heavens and the new earth. Under this one, notice the name again, this is again the new Genesis that is led by the great Joshua himself. But that's not all that's said about Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, going back to verse 21, for he will save his people from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save you from the tyranny of communism. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save you from the tyranny of fascism. And that's not what it says. Thank God. 
That's what the Israelites thought of. They wanted somebody that was going to squash Rome for them so they could be the leaders. They could be top of the rung. That wouldn't help us at all. Because if Jesus had squashed Rome, then there would be another empire to follow that would be bad. There has to be a dealing with what's more basic to the problem of evil in the world, and that's something called sins. And so Jesus is a far greater conqueror. You will call his name Jesus, the great Joshua in this new Genesis, because he will save his people. And I want, I want you to marvel at this. God connects with you in Christ by way of your sin. He will save his people from their sins. Even as in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is summarizing the gospel, and he's kind of giving you the cream of what the gospel is, he says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also was given, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's why in the Lord's Supper every week, as you'll learn in a bit, we proclaim the Lord's death, not his birth, not his resurrection, his death until he comes. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And I want to appeal to you about that today. There are so many mistakes about who Christ came for and what he does. One that's very common is that I am made acceptable to Jesus, I'm made acceptable to the Father and the Holy Spirit by being righteous, by doing all the right stuff. That will damn you quicker than your sins will. I didn't come to call the righteous. What did he mean by that? The self-righteous. And you know what that is. And it's an ugly picture. People who have their act together know what everybody's act ought to be. But when it comes to a practical confession of their failings, they steal themselves. They harden themselves like the walls of Jericho. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. And we can go, we can go even further. There's so many ways we could deal with it. How are you acceptable with God? Well, I'm a good person. Well, the Bible doesn't speak like that. None are righteous, not even one. The tongue of asps. Poison is on our tongues. You want to try to get to heaven by your goodness? Uh-uh. You go in the wrong direction. It's not based on your goodness. God doesn't meet you in your goodness. He meets you in their badness. He came to save his people from their sins. I merit salvation. I've done good works. Jesus doesn't say you merit anything because he says even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Jesus doesn't come to you based on your merit. He comes to you based on his own mercy. But I have a standing. I'm a member of the church. <clears throat> I'm a member of the country club. We once lived with a, a gentleman who's standing in the church of which we was a part. 
is that he had a very fancy cemetery plot in the church cemetery. My standing. Jesus doesn't come to you based on your standing. He comes to you based on your falling. He came to call sinners to repentance and to save us from our sins. <coughs> and it's not your riches, folks. I give all of these things to Jesus. Jesus says, you don't realize you're wretched, miserable, poor, and blind. It's not your riches. It's your poverty that you realize because of your sin. Do you? And I don't mean just saying, I'm a sinner. Anybody can say that. Do you feel that? You feel the guilt of it? You feel the emptiness of it? You feel the misery of it? Don't be afraid of that. Because Jesus is called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And it's fascinating how that name is used throughout Matthew and the rest of the New Testament. Some people say, well, we should be only calling him the Christ, the Messiah, his title. That's not the way the New Testament speaks. This is his birth name. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. This is his suffering name. Uh, when the Christ is scourged, the text says specifically, they scourged the Lord Jesus. It's his dying name. Pilate made sure that it would say on the sign above where Christ was brutally crucified, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And this is Jesus' dying name that he took on his own lips. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Jesus who gives up the Spirit. And it's the resurrection name of Jesus. You seek Jesus here in this tomb. But Jesus isn't here. He's risen from the dead. And it's the name by which he is even proclaimed as the Apostle Peter. I would have loved to have been in that chariot with him when the centurion is there. The centurion was a black man from Ethiopia. And, and here racial barriers are already being broken down. And the centurion is reading from Isaiah about one who was wounded and bruised for iniquities. And Peter says, you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I understand it? Let somebody teach me. And beginning with this text, Peter preached to him, Jesus, saving name. In heaven, it's in the book of Revelation, it's Jesus who greets John, who's so convicted of his own sin and his presence, but it's Jesus who saves his people from their sins. And it's the dying Jesus who's the Lamb of God in heaven. And Jesus is the source of grace. The very end of the Bible, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Folks, is your name united to Jesus? See, we spoke about Mary and Benjamin doing that as they get older, that God put his name on me and, and I take them. I take the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to be my God, Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. Is that true of you? That your name as a sinner is really linked to the one who saves his people from their sins, is it? That's what the, that's what the Christian life is all about. 
I wonder, folks, if in you, and let's face it, we're all prone to this, if the, if the way the world smothers the meaning of Christmas, has it smothered you? The other week I was picking out cards. I don't like cards. I, a true Orthodox Presbyterian, when it comes to cards, I find errors in the grammar. I don't like the banality in them. And I certainly, when I buy certain ones, can't stand the price of them for a card. But what I was struck when we were picking out a, a Christmas card for someone, maybe two or three mentioned Christ. Snowflakes, snowmen, Santa Claus, joy, cheer, whatever. And see, it's not a matter of keeping Christ in Christmas. It's a matter that there's no Christmas without Christ. And the greatest gift is what? The gift that you need and that I need. He'll save his people from their sins. And that's not a simple, I've asked Jesus into my heart, and I'll do what I damn well please. If that's your view of Christ, you need to be saved. You need to be saved from your sins because he is Jesus the Christ and he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. This is what it is to unite your name to the Lord Jesus. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Ye seed of Israel's chosen race, ye ransomed of the fall, hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial bow to him all majesty ascribe, and crown him Lord of all. Now you who are gathered here today in the sacred haven hall, to you, to him all majesty ascribe, and crown him Lord of all. Nothing else befits this Jesus, who's the one and only one who by that name saves his people from their sins. Let's pray. Amen. And now our Lord, seal these words to our hearts. This is indeed the great event of human history. May we honor it and acknowledge it, not just as a day, but as our lives, united with Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the great Joshua, Savior of the world. Amen. Amen.